Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. We invite you to open up your Bibles as we join Pastor Derek Olson in today's message. Good morning, church family. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, we are going to jump into God's Word in just a minute. Um, but did you, do you notice that I often greet you by saying, good morning, church family? And have you, have you, have you thought about this, too? I know some of you have thought about this, that uh, as fellow Christians, we sometimes refer to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Family language. I greet you with, as good morning, church family. Well, what's the deal with that? Um, how does that work? Because uh, none of you were born into God's family. Yes, God created all of you, whether you're followers of Jesus or not, uh, but none of us were born into God's family, and none of us were born into the same family for that matter. So how can I refer to you as church family or as brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, um, we're going to look at that a little bit this morning, but first I want to show you a picture of my family because some of you know my family and some of you don't know my family. Don't make your comments. This is biblical. This is called training your children in the way they should go. Okay, but, but this is my family. And for those of you that don't know, I have four kids, as you can see. Two of them were born into our family, and two of them uh, were not born into our family. And yet all four are very much our kiddos. Our younger two are no less part of our family. They're no less our children just because of the way they came into our family. They came into our family uh, via adoption. So then back to us talking about each other as church family. When, this is amazing to think about. When God created everything, he set up things to be perfect and awesome and, and, and us humans in relationship with him. And then things got broken and there was the entrance of sin and our rebellion against God kind of messed things up. But before time began, God purposed to rescue a people for himself. Before time began, God made a rescue plan. And before time began, God said, here's how I'm going to rescue a people, how I'm going to call God's people together, how I'm going to create my family. And you know how he did that? He chose to do it via adoption. And so those of you that are in this room this morning, myself included, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are not in God's family by your birth. You are not in God's family because of your, who your parents were. You are not in, in God's family because of attending church. You're not a Christian by, by, just by virtue of what country you live in. Rather, you are a Christian because God chose you, wanted you, pursued you, and rescued you. And so we talk about horizontal adoption. I just like to use the expression horizontal adoption to refer to human-to-human adoption, like happened in our family. And by the way, when I refer to our horizontal adoptions this morning, many, many of you in our church have families that are touched by adoption, so it's certainly not us. But not just us. Horizontal adoption is a great picture of our vertical adoption, the fact that God has adopted us into his family. And so um, I've shared some of these before, but I want to share on the screen really quick some amazing comments made by pastors and authors about adoption. And I've shared some of these with you before, but I promise this sermon is not a repeat. 
okay? John Piper says that adoption is greater than the universe. J.I. Packer says that adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The gospel being the good news that Jesus brought us out of darkness into the light, that his death, his life, death, and resurrection has made it possible for us to live and be friends with God. The greatest, highest privilege of the gospel is adoption. Tony Merida says adoption is the apex of God's redemptive grace. And Sinclair Ferguson used that same word. He said that adoption is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. These are some lofty statements, right? Well, why do these men, these authors, these pastors use such lofty statements about adoption? What does adoption mean for you and I as followers of Jesus? And what are the implications of our adoption? That's what we're going to explore a little bit this morning together. And I know uh, at first you might go, well, here goes Derek talking about adoption again. No, here goes the Bible talking about adoption again. Because we're in a series of messages called The Gospel-Saturated Life. We're studying a book in your New Testament called Galatians, which is a letter written by Paul to a group of people in Galatia. So uh, grab your Bibles if you haven't already. Open to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 26. Up on the screen, there's your page number. If you don't have your own Bible with you, there should be one near you, maybe under the seat in front of you. Grab that Bible, turn to page 1169. The rest of us flip over to Galatians Chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 26 as we ask God to show us what adoption has to do with us this morning. And while you get there, let me pray. Father God, we need you this morning. God, I pray that as we come to study your word together, would you speak to us? Would you teach us? Would you change us this morning? And God, we thank you for the gospel, the good news that while we were still stuck in sin and rebellion against you, you sent your son to rescue, to forgive, and to make us right with you again. So God, as we study your word, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 26, and I encourage you just to keep your finger right there in Galatians throughout the next few minutes, because I'm gonna, we're going to read a chunk and talk about it together, and read a chunk and talk about it. So verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So first, this morning uh, is something that's just being reminded and reminded of us, pounded home as we study Galatians together, um, that it is by faith that God adopts you into his family, that, that salvation, that coming to be right with God is by faith alone. This is something that um, the Galatians wants us to learn over and over, that it's not by your merit it's not by earning, it's not by things you do that make that please God and give you a chance to be in his family. It is only by faith, by trusting in Jesus, by giving our lives to his leadership. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what's up with verse 28? Why is it saying there's no more Jew, no more Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male? Well, certainly those distinctions still exist. Because elsewhere in Scripture, God, I mean, elsewhere in, in the Bible, Paul and others teach us about how to act in those distinct 
ways. So it's not that these distinctions are lost, but here in this verse, we see the unity within the church. We see the unity between Christians. Um, we are, are, while you and I are not identical, we're not interchangeable. God has made uniqueness and differences and distinctions. But because of Christ, if we're followers of Jesus together, we are one. We are unified. The walls that used to divide, the walls that so often in our world divide, have been knocked down by being in Christ. In this room and among Christians everywhere then, there's no, there should be no barriers of, of cultural barriers have been knocked down or class barriers or gender barriers. There's no reason among, along those lines among Christians to shun or to treat others as inferior. Are you with me? We are one in Christ. Verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then... You are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This, again, is tracking a thread we've been studying in Galatians that to get in God's family, it's not about what you do. It's not about law-keeping. It's not about jumping through certain hoops or getting circumcised or being baptized. If you belong to Christ, you're in. It's not about what you do. It's about whose you are, right? That you belong to Christ, that you've trusted in Jesus through faith, like we talked about just a minute ago, then we are receiving the promises way back when given by God to Abraham, and through Abraham's line came Jesus, and as we are in Jesus, then we are heirs of God, and that's what we're going to be seeing this morning. Now, I want to I go back to verse 27, think a little bit for a minute. Verse 27 mentioned baptism. It said that you were, it said that you were baptized into Christ, and what we just said track with me here, what we just said about baptism is that that's not what saves you, right? Getting dunked in the water is not what makes you part of God's family. Getting dunked in the water isn't to wash off your sin, okay? What's, what, what helps us become saved, what helps make us right with God, uh, what brings us into God's family is faith alone. And yet, If you read your Bibles, what most Christians experienced about coming to faith in Jesus was that faith in Jesus was almost immediately followed by baptism. Most early Christians experienced the two almost as one event. I put my trust in Jesus and I'm saved, and then I I obey him by following him in baptism to proclaim publicly what God is doing in my heart. You with me? And unfortunately, in Christian circles, the pendulum can swing too far. And we, we rightly, as Christians, we rightly didn't want the pendulum to swing over here and make us think that baptism was somehow saving us, that it was washing our sin off, that, that by being dunked in the water, I had earned God's love. We, we don't want to think that. And so unfortunately, we let the pendulum swing all the way over to the point where we now treat baptism as optional. When baptism is a command of Jesus to, to demonstrate our love to him, to demonstrate our obedience to him, to proclaim to those around us that God has changed my heart and life, and I want to live for him. And so baptism is, is, is very much wrapped up in our discipleship, in our following um, Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus that has never been baptized, Pastor Gary talked about this a few minutes ago. Uh, We're going to be baptizing. We are going to be dunking people in the water next Sunday. And it's lots of fun to celebrate together. 
And no, it doesn't, you don't need to do it to be saved, to be in God's family. But we would love to celebrate that spiritual milestone with you. We would love to see you take that step of faith and obedience. So um, again, let us know if you want to look into being uh, following Jesus in baptism. All right, so those first few verses we looked at, and we're going to keep going into chapter 4 now. Remember, when, when, when God wrote the Bible through these people, there weren't verse numbers and chapter numbers. So sometimes we stop at random places when really the flow of thought continues. Does that make sense? So we just read the end of chapter 3, and now we're going to be flowing right into chapter 4. The first few verses we looked at covered some amazing truths. But as we, um, and it started with, in verse 26, that we are children of God. But as we continue into chapter 4, um, Paul wants to help us really consider this further. He wants us to really consider and look at our vertical adoption. So as we get into chapter 4 now, it's almost like he's pausing with what he just said, and he's going to kind of dial in a little deeper so that we really think about this. Chapter 4, verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage... He is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. So tracking with this, an heir is someone who's set to receive the inheritance, but in this situation, he's too young. Even though he's the heir, even though he owns the whole estate, he's sort of too, he hasn't come of age. He hasn't come to the legal age of being able to receive the inheritance. Uh, verse 2, the heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. And then Paul compares that to us uh, Christians. So... Um, also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Here, um, God, through Paul, is, is, is pointing out to us that apart from Christ, that prior to being rescued by Jesus, we are enslaved uh, by the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And, there's, and, and, the, and the smart people that study this passage, um, the, God, the scholars and people, there's a little disagreement exactly what, what this phrase elemental spiritual forces uh, mean, but there's, there's potentially a couple things here. There's the sense of, of a legalistic following of religious rules. So he's saying you used to just be enslaved to these rules, whether you were a Jew and you were enslaved to the Old Testament law or whether you're a Gentile and you're enslaved to the, the pagan religious practices that you were following. You were enslaved to those, meaning that you thought, if I, I just got to do all these things to earn God's love. That's, that's being enslaved in a legalistic fashion to religious rules, as if, as if we think that's going to save us, right? As if we are made right with God by legalistically following the rules. That's what the Bible here is saying that we were enslaved to. And there's also a sense when it talks about the elemental spiritual forces of the world um, because elsewhere in this same section of Scripture, we see it talk about uh, us making things that are not gods into a god. We call that idolatry, right? In the Old Testament, I think you and I don't have any idea how to relate to idolatry because when we see a story in the Old Testament that involves an idol, it's usually like a physical object. It's a, you know, it's a statue and it's, it's this, this thing they created. Now they worship it as God. And we go, well, I don't have any of those in my house, so I'm good. No, idolatry is taking something that's not a God and putting it in a place in our heart and life where we treat it and worship it as a God. And so part of, what the Bible, part of what's going on here, too, is that we were enslaved to this idea of 
of whatever those things in our lives are, money, sex, power, when we put those things in a place of reverence and worship that they ought not be. And also in this passage then, what we don't want to ignore here too is that the way the, that, that passage in verse 3 is phrased, there's also demonic undertones here. Spiritual forces at work. And we need to acknowledge the reality of Satan and evil forces that have no interest in us being unified as Christians. They want us to be enslaved. They want us to be stuck so we don't want to be rescued. And so... Verses 1 through 3 then explain that we were enslaved in these ways. Verse 4. But. (laughs) That is good to hear. You read verses 1 through 3. You think through what we just thought through about being apart from Christ and prior to a relationship with Jesus. Being enslaved to legalism and spiritual forces and, um, and idolatry. And then we begin verse 4, and it says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time and all the time. Because of the situation we were in, verse 4 says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, to rescue those that are enslaved to the law, that, look at the end of verse 4, so that we might receive what? Adoption to sonship. All of that darkness and, and heaviness of verses 1 through 3 and what we're enslaved to in the world and, and all that's going on in our sin and our idolatry. But God sent his son that we might be adopted into his family. Apart from Jesus, we were enslaved, but God. And so, here's where we get to look again at adoption in this passage and why the Bible teaches us the idea of adoption is because, uh, and and what we maybe recognize a little better in in our human experience is horizontal adoption, human-to-human adoption, is again a good picture that I want us to see of our vertical adoption. Let me read for you this. David Platt, author and pastor, wrote this. Adoption begins with the parent's initiative. Not the child's invitation. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel because nothing in the Christian life, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen to what he's saying, nothing in the Christian life is born out of our merit. Everything is born out of God's mercy. If you are in Jesus, if you're a Christian, before you were born, God was working on and planning to rescue and adopt you. If Christian... uh, Our Christian life does not begin with us pursuing God. Hey, God, look at me. I'm a good kid. Adopt me. Look at me. I did so good. I follow these rules. Our Christian life does not begin with our pursuit of God, but with his pursuit of us. Christianity doesn't start with an invitation that we offer to Jesus, but with his invitation for us to become part of his family. Um, Because... um, of their horizontal adoption, speaking of my two youngest kids now, uh, because of their, uh, before, I should say before, before their horizontal adoption, before we adopted them, our two youngest were effectively orphans. Effectively. Abandoned by some adults in their life and, and failed and neglected by other adults in their life. 
effectively orphans, unable to help themselves, certainly not asking to be adopted, but in desperate need of help. And that should give us a picture of us as Christians before we received a vertical adoption. Before we as followers of Jesus received our vertical adoption, we were spiritual orphans, enslaved to false gods, unable to rescue ourselves, and in desperate need of help. But God sent forth his son. Todd Wilson writes this, that God went to great lengths to secure our adoption. He spared absolutely no expense. In fact, the father paid the highest price, right? By giving his own son. That's the the extent of God's love in pursuit of you. So then we go on to verse 5. Or we would look again at verse 5. To redeem. Why did Jesus come? To redeem those under the law, to rescue us from our sin, to forgive us from our sin, that we might receive adoption to sonship. I think sometimes we stop at the first part of verse 5. We think a lot about the first part of verse 5. Okay, thanks to Jesus, uh, he died on the cross for me, he paid the price for my sin, so my sin is forgiven, my sin is taken care of. Whew, now not, God's not going to nail me for that. Sometimes we, we kind of stop there, and that's awesome news, isn't it? What I just said, the first, anybody? <laughs> Even the first part of verse 5 is great news, right? But sometimes we stop there and we don't listen to the rest of it. We don't, we don't think about all that God has done for us in Christ to redeem us un, from under the law, to rescue us from our sin, yes, but then that we might receive adoption to sonship. Not only does trusting in Jesus bring forgiveness of our sin, it brings us into God's family. He doesn't just take away something. He gives something amazing. Not only did Christ remove the curse that we deserved for our sin, we were condemned under the law. Not only does Jesus remove that, but he gives us the blessing. God gives us the blessing that Jesus deserves, the privilege of being God's son. So the biblical um, doctrine that we, took, we call adoption, that I've been referring to as our vertical adoption, the way that Bible teaches adoption is, that, is this, that it's an act of God by which he makes us members of his family. Adoption is part of our salvation, part of his rescue plan for us, results in the forgiveness of our sin and being made right with God and and all those things are amazing and awesome and true and adoption is an act of God by which he makes us members of his family. Because of uh, my kids' horizontal adoption, they're no longer orphans. They're Olsons. And because of you and I's vertical adoption, we're no longer orphans. We're no longer slaves, but God's kids. And, verse 6, as if it's not amazing enough to try to put our mind around the fact that we're God's children, verse 6 continues, because you are his sons, 
God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. You are no longer enslaved, but you're God's child. And since you're his child, God has also made you an heir. I want to take a quick a little, uh, little side note here, uh, because some of you, uh, perhaps, as I have used the terms son and sonship a lot, might be slightly irritated, particularly you females. But don't be. Okay, listen. I'm not just using the term son and sonship. God's word is using the term. The original language, the Greek that this was written in, in, in verse 26 and in verse 7, says son. Now, some of your Bibles translated that to child because they wanted to be sensitive. They wanted you to know that you women... We are sons and daughters. We are his children. You with me? So the translators changed what was son to child for good reason, okay reason, but I'm going to suggest that maybe we shouldn't rush to be politically correct here because listen to what we can learn if we can think about the situation in which the Bible was written. Um, at that time that the Bible was written, daughters could not inherit property. Therefore, the term son really meant heir, heir to the inheritance. You with me? So if that was a status that was forbidden to women, then the gospel, the good news, and what the Bible is saying here in our passage is actually great news to call you, men and women, to call you sons. And you don't need to be offended because if the Bible is saying that you're a son, it means you're an heir. And so this is an exclusionary language to exclude you ladies. I think in this situation, this Bible language here is wonderfully inclusive, a reality for both men and the women in here. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you're an heir and you're in God's family because you're a son. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, God refers to his church, the body of Christ, men and women, as the bride. So guess what, guys? we got to be okay with being part of the bride. But this is the way God taught us this stuff, okay? So in Jesus, we are free from slavery and adopted sons, co-heirs with Christ, set to receive an inheritance and to share with Jesus in both his suffering and his glory. As God's true sons, and here's where I want us to think before we finish up this morning. Here's what I want us to, to um, see how God's adoption of us uh, can impact us, what the implications are. As God's true sons, as his heirs, our inheritance began with receiving the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So the first thing we inherited in following Jesus was that God himself, the Holy Spirit, came to dwell within us as a seal of our salvation, as a, as a seal of our, of our rescue. And the Spirit comes to us and enables us to call out, Abba, Father. What's going on if the Bible says that we call out or cry out? What kind of situation are we usually in when we call out or cry out? A tough one, right? Difficulty, hardship. I think that by, by, by saying that the Spirit comes to us and helps us to call out, to cry out, Abba, Father, the passage presumes that there's difficulty and hardship in life. And is there? 
when you became a follower of Jesus, did everything just become perfectly rosy? Sorry, no. Life in, in, in a sinful and broken world is difficult, and there's pain and hardship. And, and some of the difficulties and hardship we experience might even be God's discipline. Discipline doesn't mean to punish. Discipline means to teach. Discipline is proof. Are you, listen, to this, listen to this one. Discipline, if God is disciplining us, it's proof that we're his beloved sons. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God disciplines who? Those he loves. God desires to cultivate in me and you. He, he wants to cultivate and grow us and help us and improve our holiness and, and bring about the fruit of the Spirit and make us more like his son Jesus. And sometimes that includes discipline. And verse 6 tells us that because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit into our hearts, the Spirit that calls out Abba, Father. So if we're in these difficult circumstances, why does the Spirit help us call out Abba, Father? I want to say a quick word about Abba. Uh, there's some disagreement among scholars about what the word Abba means. It's an Aramaic word. It doesn't fit with the, the, the Greek in the rest of this passage. It's an Aramaic word for Father. Uh, you may have heard it. I've heard it as that Abba means Daddy. Um, some, I've read some places that it's a, so almost like a baby talk word for Daddy. But other scholars, um, and I, I tend to lean this way, um, actually say that what we see in the Bible about adoption is an adult son relationship to the father. And so I don't know that Abba is baby talk, but it is another word for father. And what the scholars seem to agree on for sure is that there's an intimacy in this term, right? That we can come to the great and almighty and powerful creator of the heavens and earth, and call him Abba. There's an intimacy there. And you know why I'm pretty impressed that it's a, you know, one of the reasons I think it's the way we, a grown man, a grown person can address the Heavenly Father is because Jesus himself addressed God the Father this way. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, faced with the cross, faced with what he needed to do for, on our behalf, asked God if there was any way, other way to do it, said, Abba, Father, everything is possible. Take this cup from me. I don't know if I can go through with this, but not what I will, but what you will. This is how Jesus refers to the Father. And so I think it's amazing that we as adopted children have the relationship with the Heavenly Father where we can address him in the way that Jesus does. Abba. So friends, where do we turn when life hits hard? To whom do we run? Who do we cry out to? And it's, when I start thinking about this, I'm a little convicted because sometimes I want to I, I more ask, do I turn anywhere other than to myself? Do, do, or do I just start trying harder? Or do I think, man, you know, I got I to do more. I, don't, I have nowhere to go. I just got to man up. But where do we turn? Do we just depend on ourselves? Or, or do we just complain and put the blame on others? Prior to my kids' horizontal adoption, it would certainly have seemed that they had nowhere to turn. Our kids had no father, 
and the other adults in their life had failed them and neglected them, their cries literally, we believe, went largely unheard. That they were invisible. But they, they at least were unheard by human ears. Because of their horizontal adoption, they have a mother to cry out to. They have a father to turn to. Because of our vertical adoption, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, friends, because of our vertical adoption, you are seen. You are heard. I'm an okay father, just okay. But as Christians, we have the ultimate, perfect, loving father to turn to, a father who hears our cries. And what does your crying sound like? I can't do it. God, why are you doing this to me? What am I going to do now? Or does it sound like, Abba, Father. You're his children. You can turn to him. So do we? Do we spend time in his word? God has revealed himself, and he's given us this amazing gift of a book that you hold in your lap. His very words. Do we spend time, do we turn to him by going to his word? And are we turning to him? And it says, when it says the Holy Spirit helps us cry out, guess what? You can cry out to our Father. We have a God who is on high, but he hears. And he's given you the ability to pray, to speak with the mighty God of the universe. Are you turning to him and calling out and crying out in prayer? These are opportunities we have. One of my favorite, um, one of my favorite uh, parts of Scripture in John 6, Jesus has been teaching some difficult things. In other words, following him, the, the going had gotten a little tough. And it was to the point where some of the people that had been listening to Jesus bailed. They'd been listening, but they didn't really believe. So they left. And Jesus turned to his 12 closest friends, his disciples, his followers, and said, you guys want to leave too? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper together, uh, we're going to be reminded that not only did Jesus have the words of eternal life, but his life, death, and resurrection make, us, make it possible for us to enjoy eternal life with him. God sent, friends, listen. God sent forth his son. His son lived perfectly and died in our place and rose again victorious over sin and death. And that makes it possible for us to enjoy new life in him, new life now and life eternal. 
We receive the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. We'll all explain and we'll come and we'll receive the Lord's Supper. And we do that to reflect on the cross, to reflect on where Jesus rescued us, to reflect on what he's done for us, how he's made us right with God, and how he's made us part of his family. So let me invite you to stand, and as you stand, the worship team is going to come back up here, and I want to just explain how we're going to spend our last few minutes together worshiping Jesus in different ways. I want us to have an opportunity to lift our voices and to lift our prayers, and then to receive the Lord's Supper together. So let me just explain what's going to be happening here. Uh, We have two songs that we'll be able to worship through music, so there's going to be plenty of time. There's four stations across the front of the room. The far side over there is a gluten-free option. Uh, when you come, take your time, come when you're ready. When you come, give space to the person in front of you. You're certainly welcome to remain at the table for a few moments or to take the elements and kneel or go stand or go sit and spend time with the Lord. Uh, Give each other space. And when you come, you take the bread and you dip it in the juice and you receive it, the bread and the juice reminding us of the body and the blood of Christ given for you, not only to rescue you from sin, but to make you part of his family. So come and receive. Let me just show you one more verse on the screen. This is Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Are you stuck in sin Are you enduring suffering? Are you experiencing hardship, uh, perhaps burdened by God's discipline? To whom shall we go, friends? Let's turn our eyes to Abba, Father.